0: Episode 382, Pharma, Conflicts of Interest, and the Anti-Kickback Statute. Today, I speak with Aaron Mitchell, MD, MPH.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: I saw a tweet from Dr. Farzad Mustachari the other day, and I'm going to rewrite it in the context of today's show. This is why we can't have nice things. As soon as someone comes up with something that might accomplish some good things when done in moderation and with good intent, it gets exploited for revenue maximization. I have to admit, this conversation with Aaron Mitchell, MD, MPH, and actually the one with Mark Miller, episode 380 from two episodes ago, were both kind of painful for me. And let me tell you why. It's the same reason I find conversations painful about hospitals or leading cancer centers or even some self-insured employers and EBCs. It hurts my heart when some percentage of healthcare industry peeps who have the opportunity to produce so much good in the world instead choose to do stuff that is financially or otherwise toxic. But let me get to the point of today's show. Dr. Aaron Mitchell and I are talking about conflicts of interest, COI. And we're talking about COI in the payments that are made from pharma to physicians. COI might mean when physicians are paid in a way that skews their clinical decision making. Nobody wants to be the patient of a physician with skewed decision-making. After all, that's the why of this whole discourse. Now, let's get into two important points, R. E. skewed decision-making. Any payment that skews decision-making is in fact considered no bueno by the current writing of the AKS, the Anti-Kickback Statute. Second, almost any payment, direct or indirect, turns out skews physician decision-making. It's not just getting paid the big bucks to make a speech or consult or whatever. Getting a modest free lunch can also have the same effect. Prescribing is affected. That's what the data shows and what the recent paper that Dr. Aaron Mitchell and his colleagues published in the Journal of Health Politics, Policy and Law articulates. Their paper is titled Industry Payments to Physicians Are Kickbacks. How Should Stakeholders Respond? So, huh, much to cognate upon in what I just said, which is what the conversation with Dr. Aaron Mitchell that follows is all about. But let me offer up a few spoilers and maybe some additional thoughts. First of all, some, our payments, COI, and kickbacks, contemplations, are pretty black and white. We start out the conversation today talking about the recent Biogen incident, I guess I'll call it, which is sadly not an outlier. Biogen never admitted any wrongdoing here. But if what they are accused of doing is true, this could be considered not a gray area. This is black and white. COI unquestionably should not happen. But where things get a little bit more open to interpretation and require some consideration and thoughtfulness is if we're trying to weigh the gray in the middle between black and white. Here, what needs to be thought through is the aggregate good versus the aggregate bad of pharma paying physicians to do stuff or buying things for them. If pharma needs help during its clinical trials to figure out a breakthrough therapy and they want to talk to leading experts in a specialty, that's maybe a good thing so that they can get a drug that actually works well for patients. So is, and this is me talking, not Dr. Mitchell. But I could see that pharma helping to figure out ways to educate clinicians about the best ways to help patients suffering with real diseases that nobody else is making any effort to do anything about at a national scale. It could help humans live better lives if pharma takes the advice of the right thought leaders and helps to disseminate their teachings. Maybe physician societies could fill this role, but a lot of times who needs educated are not the actual doctors in the society in question. It's Other doctors the patient is seeing who don't realize the root cause is a GI problem or CKD until the patient needs a liver transplant or crashes into dialysis in the ER. But irrespective of the validity of my musings here, the point is to quantify the in-aggregate good that might happen as a result of pharma paying appropriate clinical experts appropriate amounts. Contrast that aggregate good against some not so good. Study findings that pharma can drive up not only Rx's, prescriptions for its own drugs, but also drugs in general. When they buy stuff for doctors or pay doctors, patient populations get over-medicated when compared to a baseline as a result. Too many patients get diagnosed and treated for some condition that they may not actually have. Too many expensive me-too drugs get prescribed at big unnecessary cost to patients, taxpayers, and employers. When I say cost to patients, by the way, I also might be implying a clinical overtone here as much as a financial one because there's almost no drug that comes without side effects. So what are some solutions that Dr. Aaron Mitchell mentions today or that I bring up if we are trying to steer physician payments into the aggregate good zone and out of the bad COI, conflict of interest zone? Here we go. And these are not necessarily in the order in which they are discussed. Number one, keep an eye on practice patterns and overall costs. This might make physicians aware when their clinical decision making is getting swayed, so to speak. Number two, get payers involved. Listen to this whole episode for the how and why here, but if anyone has a visceral reaction to this, here's one possible positive from a physician standpoint. It could be a way to get rid of a lot of PAs, prior auths. If a doc's practice pattern is average on trend and or they do not take industry dollars, then they get what amounts to a PA gold card. With that carrot, a doc may have less inclination to let their prescribing decisions sway and or take pharma dollars. Number three. The federal government can get involved in a few ways that Dr. Mitchell talks about. One of them is a direct ban on all payments. Or maybe they could just clarify what is okay and what is not okay, since what is listed as COI in the current AKS, Anti Kickback Statute, is also currently considered an industry norm. Number four. Asking providers themselves to pay attention and self-regulate and to, for example, not accept speaking gigs where they are paid to talk to an empty room or, in air quotes, consult on topics that really they should know they're not thought leaders in. My name is Stacey Rector. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Aaron Mitchell, MD, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Today, we are talking about how even really small payments or gifts to physicians can sway clinical decision making in ways that the physician might not or probably is not even aware of. We are also talking about how the anti-kickback statute, the AKS, says pretty explicitly that anything that sways clinical decision making can be considered a kickback. Wow. That statement packs a punch. Clearly everything is a matter of degrees. So let's start talking here about a pretty black and white exemplar of the potential problem. There was recently a whistleblower case. Do you want to talk about this? It could be an example of payments made that could be construed to have a purpose of swaying decision making
1: it's a good example of the types of payments that are both egregious and clearly outside of anyone's definition of what should be permissible, but then it can also maybe draw some parallels to the types of activities that we still do consider permissible. Important to to note, Biogen has not admitted wrongdoing in this settlement, but what they were accused of doing is speaker fees and consulting fees, basically holding such programs that were obvious shams. Consulting is considered fine as long as the industry entity who's paying doctors to consult is getting some meaningful information from those doctors it's usually thought that that can be achieved with a relatively small number of experts in the field but what Biogen was doing was hiring a very, very large number of experts. And actually, they weren't really experts. They were just doctors who prescribed multiple sclerosis meds and were not really thought leaders in the field. They were all getting flown out to conferences. They were all getting paid thousands and thousands of dollars. And it was also clear in the documents that were then provided that they were being chosen not because they had valuable information and expertise to convey to Biogen. They were getting chosen because they were they were potential high prescribers of Biogen's drugs, and hence Biogen was putting on this whole to-do in order to to curry favor with the prescribers and influence their prescribing. Similar with their speaker program, people are getting paid to speak to empty rooms, then you get a $10,000 check after an hour lecture to an empty room. This is a good example because other manufacturers, Insys, Tiva, Novartis have all had similar settlements such as this for similar behavior, Everyone always then apologizes profusely, et cetera, and (laughs) and pays large settlements.
0: What I'm cottoning onto here is it's certainly a matter of degrees and it's certainly a matter of intent and what are we really trying to do here in the real world? Because if you're pharma, I could certainly see that you need industry experts and it would be sort of do I want to say untoward, to be asking for someone's time, like to be an unpaid consultant. But at the same time, if there is a recognition that getting paid to do something is going to, how did you put it, skew clinical decision making. And then you do something like some of these egregious cases where someone's up speaking in front of an empty room or something like that. Basically, it's, as you said, the intent there isn't to learn something. The intent is to figure out how to pay somebody. Mm -hmm. I could see how this could get really messy in the sense that if you're trying to deduce exactly where a prescribing decision came from. So for example, there's drugs that aren't better than the standard of care that probably under no cases should get prescribed. But then there's good drugs and there's appropriate patients for those drugs. There's inappropriate patients also, right? And, you know, even if it's a good drug, but the patient is inappropriate, then that patient should not be, again, getting that drug. And I'm making clean (laughs) theoretical statements here. Obviously, it's a little bit messier in the real real world. But if you have a good appropriate patient and a physician who at some juncture got paid a speaking fee and who's very educated about that drug and who did the biomarker test or whatnot, and they prescribe that drug, then, you know, it's kind of a question mark. Did they prescribe it because their opinion was swayed vis-a-vis the payment? Or did they prescribe it because they were educated enough to realize that this was a correct patient, right?
1: The concern in many cases is not about the appropriateness of the service being delivered. In some cases it is, but in many cases it's not. I think this is what we're getting at as there's a little bit of a disconnect between what the law currently says and maybe the ideal world that we would want because the the law currently says or has been interpreted by the OIG is that type of service would still be suspect under the current interpretation because that physician had previously received payment from the manufacturer. Maybe we wouldn't want it that way. Maybe we would want certain types of of payments to, to be okay and not have that kind of scrutiny and and potential to be called illegal or called a kickback.
0: So do you want to talk about your paper?
1: We recently published a paper in the Journal of Health Politics, Policy and Law titled Industry Payments to Physicians Are Kickbacks, How Should Stakeholders Respond? The central, I guess, observation, or you can maybe you could call it an argument we're making in this paper, it really starts off with, with two points. So the first point is, here is what AKS states, here is how the Office of Inspector General has interpreted it, both in their published documents as well as in case law. That's point one. And then point two is bringing in more recent observational evidence and data on what types of payments influence prescribing. Uh, What has been found and what we we cite and discuss in, in this piece is that a large number of different kinds of payments to physicians do influence their prescribing. It's not just these cases which are kind of egregious and clearly problematic, like the behavior in the Biogen settlement, in the Novartis settlement, those kinds of things. It extends to types of payments that I would say are currently widely accepted as being okay, like these types of free drug meals or consulting when we're talking small numbers of physicians, getting asked about areas where they are appropriately in their, in their field of expertise. These are very common types of transactions that are happening to the tune of a couple billion dollars a year. And most of this is considered to be okay but we know that it still influences and, and, and sways physician prescribing. So when you take these two things together, if OIG says anything that sways prescribing could be an illegal, considered an illegal kickback, and we now have clear and consistent evidence from you know, every study that has looked at this association has found an association between which companies physicians get money from and which drugs they prescribe in the future. And now that we have that data, it looks like a lot more types of payments than we previously thought actually could be considered kickbacks or could be considered bribes. And that applies to conventional consulting. It applies to to free meals. And what I think we then point out in the paper is we need to, to reconcile this. We were kind of saying that here's what's illegal. A lot of what meets the definition of illegal is happening hundreds or thousands of times a day, how should we reckon with this? Is this something that we're, we're okay with? Do we need to change our definition of what is or isn't illegal? Do we need to take our definition of illegal to its logical conclusion, which would be maybe a lot of the types of payments that are, are currently commonplace need to not happen or need to be regulated a lot more strictly than they currently are?
0: I'm on the edge of my seat, my friend. How should stakeholders react?
1: One proposal that we make in this paper that I've not seen before, so I think we might be the first to, to point this out, is there may be a role for private payers in this space uh, the observations we're making I'm certainly no I make no claim to expertise on the payer side I have a kind of a generalist knowledge of, of what kinds of strategies and what kinds of priorities insurance companies you know have and, and use so there may be issues with feasibility but I look at a very public data source like open payments, which is a record of which doctors have gotten payments from what companies. And I look at the clear academic data and evidence that's come out of studies that says, hey, doctors who get money from a company, like they are then more likely to prescribe that company's brand name drug over an equally effective generic competitor. I look at those things together and I say, it seems like an insurance company would be a stakeholder. They would have a need or a desire. Higher, their, their interest would be to have the physician pick the, the cheaper and hence higher value treatment option. So could payers use the information in open payments to use it in the negotiation process to try and ratchet down the amount of money that the physicians in their network are getting from industry? Or if a physician is getting a particularly high amount from industry and is also using a lot of a given company's drug, if that's worth additional scrutiny, could they apply those kinds of of levers and tactics to downregulate industry money and its potential influence on physicians.
0: Now, you did put some bookends around that example. You said a branded drug where there is an equally effective generic in the picture here, right? So if we're thinking about drugs that, that have generic competition, that there's a generic equivalent that's available.
1: That is definitely one example. I would say it also uh, the same applies to just overall utilization of of a given service. So both increases utilization overall and also can shift prescribing towards a branded drug over a cheaper alternative.
0: So when you say increases prescribing overall.
1: A greater proportion of your patients, you will then deem it necessary to give any one of the drugs in this class to like you will see more opportunities to prescribe and use any one of these drugs to your patients
0: if you look at somebody's overall patient population, there's more of them on maybe drugs in general. And then the prescribing for that one drug for that prescriber will be higher. I think a typical example of that is my mother's next door neighbor got prescribed a drug for rheumatoid arthritis. And all of us were sort of looking at each other going, does she have rheumatoid arthritis? Really? (laughs) So maybe it's that, that, you know, maybe patients are a little bit overdiagnosed and then they get this particular med. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this gets really interesting because let's just say that one drug, I mean, I'm just thinking of the most obvious example. Let's just say that's actually the cheapest drug or actually the most effective. I mean, and obviously there are certainly cases where that is not the case, but this is full of, of nuances. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you perceive those nuances.
1: That's a great segue into another thing that I like to, to talk about, which is the aggregate benefit versus risk of these types of payments to doctors. I think we've moved, and this is very much my own biased perception, but it seems like maybe over the last decade or so, we've moved from the predominant thinking being that small payments to doctors, like free meals, 20 bucks for a sandwich or whatever, is, is unlikely to persuade prescribing at all, we've moved from that to acknowledging that it's like, well, it actually looks like very small payments can influence doctors. That I think is increasingly settled and accepted. But now we're in the space where it's, okay, given that these payments do influence prescribing, even small payments, is this the aggregate effect of that something that we need to be concerned about? Or, as I often hear argued, or is it the case that If industry is typically using these payments as a way of getting us educated or on board with their newest treatments, and newer treatments tend to offer value or are better than the old ones? Is this really just greasing the wheels towards implementation and getting better treatments into clinical practice faster? And hence, you know, maybe there could be better ways to do it. Maybe there's ways that, you know, seem or feel ethically better. But really, it's going to be good for patients in the long run. I think that's where the conversation is right now it is, in my view, ultimately an empiric question as to whether or not these the types of payments that we've been talking about are associated with improved prescribing quality or lower prescribing quality. I think that the, the jury is still out and we need more evidence on that. What is clear is that it does influence doctors. And I would say that there is a little bit of data, anecdotal data so far, that leaves the question very much open in my mind about which direction the kind of the aggregate nudge from industry is going to be the paper that i like to cite with respect to this question the authors were tyler greenway and joseph ross at yale this paper was in the bmj british medical journal a few years ago what they did was they looked at the just the mix of drugs like what are the drugs that are top prescribed by doctors and what are the drugs that are top promoted by industry then among those drugs, they looked at a few reference measures of, say, therapeutic benefits. So how innovative was the drug, meaning was it a new drug with a new mechanism that met some new need, or was it a me-too drug, basically? And given the mix of other options that the drug was entering into at the time it was approved, was it marginally better, a lot better, no better or even worse than the existing competitors. What they found was that you kind of look at these drugs in aggregate, the drugs that physicians are prescribing, the large majority of them are drugs that were innovative at the time they were introduced uh, and ones that do offer a substantial therapeutic benefit over their competitors. In contrast, the drugs that are most highly promoted by industry relatively fewer of them were innovative and or therapeutically beneficial. So very limited data sets. I mean, we're talking like 20, 30 drugs they looked at, and it's very circumstantial. But it's, to me, it's at least consistent with the idea that if there is really a drug that's meeting an unmet need and doing it well, then doctors are naturally going to gravitate towards that and start prescribing it, where it's the the drugs that are a little bit less clear in terms of their benefit that industry then has to expend more energy and money in promoting to doctors. If that's the case, then the potential for benefit from the the influence that industry money has on doctors, it's less clear if they're promoting the drugs that aren't necessarily the most beneficial ones.
0: It makes sense that marketing would be higher for drugs that need marketing. And so I do not doubt that the paper is accurate. I also could think that if a drug had very a very new mechanism of action or it treated a problem that was harder to diagnose or didn't get diagnosed or required a referral to a subspecialist, I could see that in those cases, there'd be a need for clinician education. Is that marketing? It's like sometimes I think there's a big bucket called marketing that maybe has too many varied things in it, some of which are different than others and maybe more or less meaningful relative to their ability to improve patient care. But if we're if we're talking about how do we solve for this? One of the things you mentioned was getting payers in the mix because if you have a physician who's jacking up the cost of care over the over whatever's normal, like whatever the average cost is, then you have a, a doctor whose their patients cost a ton more and if you track it back, you see that they're prescribing these brand name drugs, then that could be one way to consider this. And just because I'm me, I will bring up the fact that, you know, at the current time, we have these insurers who are governed under the same corporate balance sheet as the PBMs. And there's all these examples of branded drugs that are on formulary (laughs) and some generic that is not. Mm -hmm. So we have also some conflicts. It's not like payers themselves aren't also subject to some of these perverse incentives and conflicts of interest. But it certainly could be an interesting thought, especially if you're an entity like an employer, maybe, who pays for the medical expense as well as the pharmacy expense. Obviously, one of the issues is that if pharmacy is siloed, there's some newer PBMs out there that are taking into account what the medical, what the downstream medical costs are. So it it certainly could be possible for an entity like that without other sort of conflicts that may influence what they're doing to roll with something like that for sure. Is there any other solutions to this relative to what should stakeholders do?
1: The other stakeholders here are providers and industry, pretty clearly. I would love to see more self-regulation on this front by, by both of them. Another stakeholder here is, of course, the federal government being a big purchaser of of both drugs and services. Within CMS and the CMS OIG, there's room for clearer guidance. Either just (laughs) clear things up and say, you know, are, are free lunches illegal, right? They've set up a legal interpretation paradigm where you could look at what they've said and reach the conclusion that, oh, yeah, I guess these are suspect because they do influence physicians. Do they want to say, no, we're not going to go there? Or actually, based on our stated principles of wanting to avoid any influence on prescribing behavior, we're going to, to start placing these types of transactions under closer scrutiny as well, given our interest in minimizing unnecessary pharmaceutical costs, potentially from branded drugs that have generic competitors.
0: As you just said, the federal government could certainly take a look at, I mean, they're already collecting, there's the so-called Sunshine Act laws. And and you said the open payment database. Pharma is certainly reporting on who they are paying very diligently from what I have seen. Mm-hmm. So it's not a secret to find out what doctors are getting paid by whom. So the federal government could certainly look at that more carefully. And then as you mentioned, other stakeholders, of course, providers themselves. And it, it is frankly a little bit dispiriting To We talked about that example before where some doctor was up in front of an empty room speaking and then collecting their thousand dollar check. Well, that doctor was standing in front of an empty room speaking like that didn't strike them as as odd.
1: Yeah, I share your concern and the wide eyes that about the number of people who on both ends who've engaged in those types of payments and seem to be fine with it.
0: Yeah, we rely on our physicians to be very impartial and to make very logical decisions that are not based in self interest. And it is a little bit of a sad state when you see like back surgery being the quintessential example of, and there was just another <laughs> fraud case where it's just the legions of patients getting back surgery. And you really hate to say that. And I hate to use that example because there's some amazing orthopedic surgeons out there and centers of excellence that would never do such a thing or buy-in bill which you brought up before where it's kind of strange that decisions that are more financially rewarding are made more often by some doctors.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that the like the medical therapy equivalent to the unnecessary back surgery could be something like the story of Acthar gel, which is a, I guess it's not even branded anymore, but it's made by one manufacturer and the price is, is astronomical. There's very limited clinical data. It's it seems to be equivalent to low-dose or older generic steroids like prednisone in its effectiveness to treat several Rheumatologic conditions, and then also the it's been heavily promoted by the manufacturer. Pretty much all of the high prescribers of the drug are physicians who receive money from the manufacturer. And yeah, if I were a payer, and the people in my network have been getting money from the manufacturer and were prescribing a whole lot of Acthar gel, then then that would be a case where I'd want to be able to, to look at alternative therapeutics. But then at the same time, the provider could say, Hey, this is it's an approved and effective therapy. And it's one that we've become accustomed to using and we think it works for our patients. And then you're kind of stuck. So yeah, it's, it's definitely not
0: easy. Yeah. What you're alluding to there is actually a bigger issue than just overly prescribing a a low value drug. It speaks to that physician's, the overall value that is being provided there and whether their practice patterns are going to amount to better patient outcomes, right? Like if we're really thinking about this from the, the, the patient perspective, what does a patient want? especially considering that, as I keep saying, financial toxicity is clinical toxicity, right? So like patients who can't afford Mm -hmm. their therapy, there's just another study the other day, actually in the oncology space about patients who are concerned about the financials that are involved do worse. So if the drug is in fact overly expensive and not that great, And if, in fact, there is a clinical alternative, which is less expensive and just as good, and if we've got patients who can't afford the drug and then don't wind up taking it, which is really common, actually, patients abandon Mm -hmm. drugs at very high rates, then the patient outcomes coming out of that are not going to be as good. So if we're concerned about creating a real performance network of of physicians who are really delivering the patient outcomes that I would hope that patients would want and demand or an employer who's footing a lot of the bill for their own employees, it could wind up being a bad call from a physician's standpoint to take the quick money and then wind up getting kicked out of performance networks or whatnot because the outcomes aren't what they could be had their prescribing been more in line with what's going to actually drive clinical outcomes.
1: Mm -hmm. It's just always so much harder to get to the outcomes because there's so much more that happens in between the clinical decision and then what the patient's outcome is down the road. And so I think I'd also want to keep the door open for looking at your process measures or your direct scrutiny on the upstream clinical decisions. Like if there's something that can be, we already have the clinical data to say what's high value and low value. We can start looking at that directly on the clinical decision side.
0: What are you thinking about there? Like we've got A1A clinical guidelines When there's drugs that are on those guidelines. So how many people are prescribing based on A1A clinical guidelines and then how many Aren't is Mm -hmm. that what
1: you're thinking of? I'm still anchored a little bit on the on the brand and generic. So if you've got someone using still a higher cost branded drug, then you know why not move over to the to the generic. In cases where I'm thinking the CML drugs, where Gleevec is now one of several options, and you can shift towards the option. So I was thinking like ones like that where we've got comparable clinical effectiveness but increased value by virtue of a lower cost. What you were saying before about the financial toxicity is clinical toxicity to the patients, like it'll be it'll be less among the higher value option.
0: Obviously, there's going to be some exceptions. I'm just thinking of a a case I heard recently where somebody tried the generic and it actually didn't work as well. That's not going to be certainly everybody. It's maybe 1%, 5%, right? So you don't want the exception to remove the rule. But it's, it's pretty cut and dry in the sense that you're talking about. What did I forget to ask you?
1: I like to point out when I get the question of what should we do? What would be, Aaron, your ideal alternate universe? What about that innovation that is going to get stifled if you want to ban everything and how are pharmaceutical industries supposed to get that expertise from physicians? I think especially within academics where, where I am, the types of payments that are for true consulting, for development of new agents and true innovation, it's, it's definitely there. And I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as you put it, and pretend like that doesn't exist because it, it does. There is true collaboration and innovation that happens. But I think that we tend to focus more on that than on marketing of post-approval drugs that have already been innovated and are already on the market. Maybe the the happy medium that we can come to is saying regulating more strictly payments that are happening for post-market drugs while regulating more liberally or allowing more of the types of consulting and types of payments that happen for pre-market agents.
0: All of us obviously are in the industry and we have to make ethical choices. Obviously, all of what we're talking about right now boils down to. It's just what is ethical? Where can people go to learn more about your work, Dr. Mitchell?
1: Go to my personal profile at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I'm in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and there should be links to a lot of my recent work there. And everyone is always welcome to follow me on Twitter or where my handle is at the Woncologist.
0: At Woncologist, and I would recommend following Dr. Aaron Mitchell there. Dr. Aaron Mitchell, it was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you. Thanks so much for listening.